Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I hope you got a chance to listen to Tuesday's episode with Robert Furbeck. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I know from several of you, at least those of you that are not in Las Vegas this week, that you really enjoyed that episode, and I'm so glad that you did. I am actually recording this from the second floor of the conference center of the ARIA. I had every intention to record today's episode before I left for Vegas, but there's just so many things to do before the trip and then during the trip, and then you get to see all your friends or you get to meet new people and you get distracted. So here I am putting myself in timeout to be able to record this episode for those of you who aren't here as well as for those of you who are here who are listening to this after the week of Merchant Risk Council. It's been a crazy week. I am already sleep deprived and it's only been a couple days or like a day and a half with so many great conversations and I will be providing a pretty good overview or just from my experience and some of the topics that people are talking about and some of the themes and there's been a request for blind items. So if you were at MRC and you had a odd interaction with whether it was a peer or a solution provider or something funny happened or somebody said something very odd in the session that you were in or something like that, send it my way. I won't provide, as always, I won't provide names. I won't provide company names or people names or any kind of identifying information, but I think that they can be fun. If you follow a pop culture, you might know about blind items, where it's basically, I saw somebody do this and it was, you can learn from it. I cannot believe that something that I witnessed yesterday, I kind of like that, that not everyone knows who I am. And I'm just going to say, so I'll just give you a heads up. I'm not telling all the details. I probably won't give all the details next week either, but if you're a solution provider and you're still in Las Vegas, I would just highly recommend that you not have any conversations with your coworkers anywhere outside of a closed room where you know no one else can hear. Because you never know who's standing in front of you in line or next to you in an elevator. And the things that you share are sometimes quite sensitive information that you really don't want anyone else to know. So that's a tidbit, right? So like a blind item with that would be, I was standing in front of two salespeople and they're talking about how bad their own product is and how they feel bad selling it, but that they have a high quota that they have to do. It's something like that. There's actually so much more to that story, but uh, so if you want to submit those, go for it. I know a few of you already have and just fun, right? I'm not calling anyone out. It's more for fun as well as to learn, right? You may not have thought of that before. So next time you're going to say, hey, guys, let's not ever talk about anything work or the corporate culture or the toxic class or anything else when there could be a potential terrific company. But on today's episode, I wanted to follow up a little bit from my conversation with Robert on Tuesday because we had such a good conversation about social engineering and we could talk about social engineering forever. And I know it's happening all the time, right? It's been happening since long before the internet because we had phone sales and before phone sales. Con men, they say that's one of the oldest professions of all time. And really a con is really social engineering. Just sometimes it's a long social engineering play. Other times it's a shorter one. 
but it's manipulating people to get what you want, whether it's information or whether it's an action. And we know that just like in cybersecurity, social engineering is a tool in the fraudsters toolkit that they use to gain access to what they want, whether that's information, whether that's account access, whether that's money or committing the crime themselves, whether they're getting you to transfer money out of someone else's account to them, getting you to transfer money out of your own account, or whether they are asking someone in customer service to reroute a package or share with them why their order was canceled, things like that. So it can range. And something that I've noticed from the company perspective as far as education and prevention, there's really two approaches. If you're approaching it all, I have to say, Sometimes social engineering falls through the cracks. The fraud team assumes that the customer service or cybersecurity is providing training. Cybersecurity might assume that the call center does their own training. But, but at the end of the day, it's something that just needs to happen. And so I highly recommend reaching out to the, your counterparts in customer service and cybersecurity just to inquire about the type of training that they're getting. And Mind you, it's not always the customer service and customer support who are the targets, but they are in the front line. And within corporate America, whether it's banking or e-commerce or fintech, oftentimes other people that work at those companies, you don't have a phone line that's public, especially with remote work. So it's not like they're going to know that they need to talk to a lower level buyer at, or an assistant or something like that because they, that phone number probably isn't published. So it is usually, and if somebody calls one of them, it's, I'm not used to anyone calling me that I don't know, so I'm just going to send you to customer service. So that's why it's usually the job of customer service. So I do think it's good to coordinate with cybersecurity and maybe trust and safety if you have that as a separate entity and department within your company, as well as customer service. Just, hey, what are we doing for this? It's not that I'm critiquing it. It's just, I want to make sure that I'm supporting you guys too, right? That we're supporting you in social engineering training as well as prevention, et cetera. But then when it comes down to the G of preventing it, I see two different ways. One is educating people on what the motivations of social engineers will be. So it might be, hey, we're seeing a lot of people trying to call our phone center and gain access to the bank accounts or for accounts, people that aren't that. If they've got this big story or maybe they call and talk to a specific rep at off hours. And maybe the first two times they don't even ask to access their account. They say their name, they talk about stuff, and they're like, oh, you know what? I don't really need to do anything yet. I, but if I do need to change the address on my account because I'm moving, how do I do that? Oh, okay, cool. Maybe they call back tomorrow. Hey, yeah, so I talked to you yesterday, or they might ask for them, or they might know what time they that specific person works. Sometimes social engineers will just keep hanging up until they get the same person. And they might say, hey, you know what? I know yesterday I called and talked to you about changing my address. Can we do that now? Oh, sure. Now that they know who you are and you guys have had conversations, they may not even ask you for the security questions. Those are just a couple of examples, but that's an example of a motivation, right? Or knowing, hey, we're seeing a lot of people call in and ask to have packages rerouted or sent to an apartment building or something or something like that so watching out for those motivations whenever somebody's asking these questions you need to if anyone's wanting to do this action you need to make sure you're verifying identity right but the other is doing more of a holistic approach in training them on social engineering like regardless of the motivation because honestly the motivations change all the time and so do the tactics there are some core fundamentals of social engineering and there's four different types. And if you do enough education holistically, then the representative or the person who's answering the phone doesn't always necessarily need to know, oh, people are trying to scam me to get them to do this exact thing. 
It's just, huh, I'm going to be cautious on this. Or one of the tips that Robert gave that I thought was so smart. If you get an email that's urging you to act quickly or preying on fear or something like that, or it says it needs to be confidential, a phone call or whatever, just take a minute, right? Take a minute, walk around 30 seconds, just to have some critical thinking. Because like he said, once that spell, once they're under assumptions, you spell, you can get them to give so much more information. That's why he would always just ask for one small thing. And then, oh, hey, by the way, since I have you on the phone, can you also give you all of their song numbers? Or can you also tell me about what kind of project they're working on now? Or what are they doing there? And also he impersonally has a lot of existing employees and that's brilliant. It's scary, but I think a lot of times when companies are training people on social engineering, it's all about outsiders. But in the day of LinkedIn, and it's very easy to know somebody's position and where they're based and all of that. So you find an employee that's based in another part of the world. They probably haven't met in person. And especially with remote work and so many people who have been hired remotely and they've never met barely any of their coworkers or employers in person unless their company has an on-site or unless there's a conference or something like that. Impersonating someone that works for your company isn't hard. And especially if it's someone, you know, high up in the company, CEO impersonations are quite common. But it can also be other executives or your boss's boss, maybe. At someone lower level that just wants to, not their direct boss, but two more up the ladder, they'll do anything. And they're not going to second guess it. They want to, like, wow, they picked me. But it's really somebody scamming them and taking advantage of their company. So I think those are all things to think about. But one of the reasons why I specifically asked Robert to come to Fraudology right around now is that over the last several weeks, I've had more, I just heard more reports anecdotally and I've been asked more questions about identifying and proactively preventing social engineering attacks. I feel like my knowledge of social engineering attacks comes in waves. That doesn't mean that social engineering attacks come in waves. I do trend analysis, right? Whenever anyone reaches out, hey, have you seen this or has anyone seen this or that or whatever from a social engineering or from any perspective of fraud? But it seems like I won't hear about it for a while. And then, oh man, this is happening, that happening. And oftentimes it's when, oftentimes that company will get hit with more social engineering attacks after they plugged the hole online, it was fairly easy for account takeover to happen on your site, for example, for e-commerce. And now all of a sudden you're requiring that the cardholder enter the CVV of the card number on file or having them re-enter the entire 16-digit card number on file because they're logging in from a different device or they have different MO. Now they're going to say, I still want to commit that action, but the path of least resistance is no longer online. So now I'm going to go through the call center. So you can often anticipate that as well. But there's also some other ones recently that I've been like, there's especially one that I don't want to say that I was impressed, but I actually told Robert about it before the call. I said, there's this one specific case that I heard about recently and I told him what it was and he goes, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. He goes, it's sadistic and it's horrible, but it's brilliant. And I said, yeah, I agree. So I wanted to share with that, even though I don't, I think it's still good to train your teams on overall best practices and holistically identifying or just preventing social engineering without always knowing the methodology or their motivations. I still think it's important to know that because sometimes you might think, how could this be fake? Like, why would anyone say this if it wasn't real? So that's also something to look out for. I think you can just always assume that people will lie about anything, right? I sometimes surprises me how many people will lie about things that can be checked out, that can be proven, right? I mean, I see it sometimes where people will lie about the job, the title they had, or what they did at their last job, or who they're friends with, or anything like that. And it's like, people think, oh, well, why would they lie about that? Because I could just look it up on LinkedIn. So I'm sure they're telling the truth. Actually, it's not only the case. 
So those are the things that, you know, even if you think, why would anyone lie about this? It doesn't mean that it's not a trap, right? It doesn't mean that they aren't lying about it. If that's more of my point. While most of these social injury attacks are always directed at the call center, like I said, and customer support employees, lately more executives and senior leadership have been targeted. And often when these people, like the people in these positions don't know that social engineering can and will happen that they can be victimized often they'll just trust people to who they say they're just mostly because they haven't had training or they're going a million miles a minute and they just on to the next on the next they just don't have time to think about things and go and also most people that are that high in a company especially large companies they're not they're not hired to think about the details they're not hired to know the details so often they're big picture people and they're not going to think or be skeptical at all they're not going to think oh somebody's trying to steal from us or they're my corporate spy, like Robert, right, committing espionage. Like, why would anyone want this? If they have that information, plus all the other information, or if they know who has the job that's working on the new product, and then they headhunt them or whatever, they, then they could put those pieces together. It's not always just a one-and-done thing. Often they just won't, often executives won't second-guess a special request from a customer or an employee within the company, and they'll just do it. So that's why these things work, right? But SIRS would not keep investing and working on their craft, so to speak, of social engineering if it didn't work. I will say that not all online fraudsters will ever go to social engineering. Some of them are like fraud fighters. Some of them are a little socially awkward or they never want to pick up the phone or they don't have that skill set. But the ones that do are really good at it. And especially with fraud as a service, you yourself, the fraudster themselves, doesn't have to be good at everything. They can find somebody very quickly within a fraud forum on often clear websites or in private messaging apps and groups to do the social engineering for them. So there are people who, you know, hey, I'm really good at conning people on the phone. Tell me what you want to know. Give me the information you have and I'll go do it for you, you know, and pay me this. No longer do they need to know everything or do everything well. So I wanted to give some examples, though, things that we've seen for a while, as well as some of the newer ways of social engineering, targeting banks, services, financial institutions, fintechs, as well as e-commerce and marketplaces. And some of these have overlap, right? So while in banking, PO access on accounts, on a credit card account or on a banking account is very popular. It has been for a long time. It was more popular in banking first, and then it went to e-commerce. And I've told the story before about how the gaming industry was the first ones to identify account takeover within e-commerce. And I, I believe that was 2013 or 2000, yeah, 2013, based on where I was at the time. But now it's like everybody is dealing with it. So just because I might put that in the banking category. Obviously, everyone else does it. And sometimes it's for different purposes. Sometimes it's, like I said, to change the address on the credit card account so that the address verification at a retailer for an expensive item will match up. And so that way the retail, okay, the retailer requires ABS match and they require the billing and shipping to match. And you're a fraudster. Okay, I need, I need to change that address on file for that customer. And I need to find a way to do it without knowing all of their secret passwords and all of their security questions. That's one example of why they would need to socially engineer a bank. But that similarly, they can do it on a bank account and drain all the transfer out all the money and different things like that. Now, granted, we have ways of identifying them when they're doing it online, but when they're doing it over the phone, when they're saying, I'm so little lady and I don't have a computer, can you just do it for me? Sometimes that happens, right? And they'll often take, pretend to be someone or pretend to be in a case that 
could make sense that you probably had similar calls that were legitimate for. They also can update information without triggering a multi-factor authentication if they're on the phone. They can make actions without an IP address or a device. So sometimes on e-commerce, you'll have fraudsters call in and say, can I just place an order that's really big and I really, I don't trust the internet because there might be fraudsters or whatever the story is that they say. And now they placed an order through your customer service and there's no IP address, there's no device information, there's no, there's a lot of information that companies rely on now that if that transaction is made over the phone, they don't have. Now, if a, there are definitely some solutions out there, because I'm at MRC, of course, I'm thinking about solutions, but there's definitely solutions out there that can help call centers protect themselves in different ways. There's some really fascinating voice biometrics happening, being offered right now, as well as different tools for online to say, okay, this was a phone order, so we're going to treat it a little bit differently because we know we don't have that information, but we also are going to say, hey, it's a little bit riskier because we don't have that information. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Probably one of the biggest types of social engineering that retailers and e-commerce marketplaces with physical goods are experiencing now and have for the last few years is social engineering on refund claim fraud. So they'll call into customer service and they're getting better and more good every day. There's, I will be talking about refund fraud very soon. I know that I feel almost like I talked about it too soon a couple of years ago. I know that it is definitely a huge pain point, but there are five different types of refund fraud and three of them rely solely on exploiting the call center or the chat or customer service of some sort 
And two of them actually are exploiting the warehouse because they're sending back items or they're at least making it look like they sent back items. Those first three types of refund fraud where they're exploiting the call center, those are the easiest for refunders to execute. So of course, they're just going to keep trying. And once they find a story or a tactic or a person that works, they're just going to keep doing it until it doesn't work anymore. In fact, there's actually a blog of a social engineer that does nothing but talk about social engineering tactics for retail and refunds for refund fraud i'll try to remember to put in the show notes but that website is actually www.socialengineers.net if you are a retailer experienced refund fraud it can be quite the rabbit hole to go down but it is nothing but very long blog posts detailing out different types of scams and social engineering specific to refund claim fraud so i've shared that with other retailers i work with but i think it's very much worth sharing it with you as well because just like with anything, when you know what the fraudsters are doing, you can reverse engineer it to figure out, okay, how can we stop it in different ways? That website I've learned a lot from over the years as I've been investigating, researching refund fraud and working with a lot of the biggest retailers in the world on this problem has been really helpful for me. I think it's actually where I learned about the FTID method a few years ago. And that method keeps expanding. But if I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is a new type of method that I'll go look at the blog and go, yep but here's how we can identify it. Okay, so here's the kicker that I just couldn't believe. This is a story from a uh, goods merchant that has high price point items, or at least their average basket size is very large. So it might be that their individual items aren't super high, but most people buy a lot, or or the electronics or luxury or something like that, right? So they're high dollar. And I think, I don't know what their average ticket is, but I know that a lot of their transactions are easily several thousand dollars. So the fraud manager not too long ago was on one of my collaboration calls and he said, hey, Chris, I have a weird one that's out in left field. And I said, I love left field. If you know me, you know that's true. I love the weird stuff. I love diagnosing things. I love problem solving. I love trying to figure out the hard use cases. What technologies exist that we can bend it a little bit for this use case? How can we do this differently? So I was very excited about it. But then when they said the issue, I was like, oh my goodness, that's horrible and I understand exactly why it works. So he said the fraud, so what the first action that happened was that the bad actors, or we should say the suspected bad actors, would place an order for five to $10,000. It would be obviously fraud. Everything about screen fraud, in fact, almost always the automatic system identified it. It didn't even get sent to manual review because it was difficult. Everything about it was obvious fraud. I'm obviously not going to list all those details in this public platform, but when they listed them out, it was like, oh yeah, for sure. The sad thing is once he got halfway through, I said, oh, I bet I know exactly where they're shipping to. And I was unfortunately right because I've seen this before, but not exactly this. So obviously the fraud department or the fraud tool is canceling these orders and sending out an email letting the customer, in quotation marks, know that the order has been canceled. Oftentimes those emails are not going to say due to a suspicion of fraud, but it's to say your order can't go through. And that's a whole other conversation that many merchants will have with each other is, hey, what do your emails say when you cancel things? You need to say enough, but not too much. And legal is always wanting to get involved in that too. All right, fully. you're sending out that email and then that person doesn't call customer service to contest it or say, hey, you know, that wasn't right. That, you know, that's me. What can I do to get this order through? They email, they go straight to an executive, whether it's the CEO, the CMO, the CFO, the COO, like whoever it is, they go straight to like the top people. And it's fairly easy to get those emails whether you know 
they have it public on LinkedIn or whether you can figure out the naming convention for the company email system. So an executive gets an email from someone who had their order canceled. And basically what the email says is, I don't understand how this order could have been canceled. The only thing I can think of, or they just don't even say that. They just say, the only reason why you could have canceled this order is because you are racially profiling or because you are profiling against my religion or you are profiling. You guys obviously have a prejudice of some kind. And clearly because of where we are in the world and the insensitivities and others and racism and prejudice do exist, absolutely. And sometimes in corporate America, but this is something that fraud departments and people have been really conscious of over the years, right? We want to make sure that we're not just profiling on like where somebody lives or what their name is. We want to make sure that we have actual data to back up why we're canceling orders. But what the executive reads when they see that is, oh boy, if we don't pass this order, they're going to go on social media. They're going to accuse us of being racist and socially been racially profiling. They're going to start a campaign it's going to use so much bad press. We're going to lose so much money and customer trust and it could be in really bad headlines. So, you know what, we just need to pass this order. So usually the exec will just send an email to the fraud leader and say, reverse this, ship it out. They're not saying, hey, can you review it again and make sure it's fraud? It's, yeah, I don't care. And the reason why is because to them, it's worth losing five or $10,000 to protect their brand. The problem is no one's calling their bluff, right? And I bet you guys can guess what happened after the first time that worked. Within two weeks, that exact situation had happened eight more times with different executives. And the fraud manager was asking, what do I do? Like, how do I prove to them that this is fraud? Because obviously my gut says it's fraud. But as we know, and I think Robert Kapps is the one that brought this up to me first, like on the podcast anyway, that a lot of us in fraud, we talk, we go based on our gut and our intuition. And it's almost always right. It's not that it's wrong, but it's that that's not a way to communicate with an executive, right? I know it's fraud. We can't just, I don't care. It's more, it's worth way more money for us to protect our brand than it is to worry about this. And within those two weeks, no chargebacks had come yet. So it was hard for the fraud manager to say, this is for sure fraud, stop doing it. So when this retailer brought that up on the call, there were several peers suggesting that you need to make the cardholder confirm their identity and give the authorization code that they would only know if they logged into their online banking or asked them the color of their neighbor's house and see how long it takes them to guess or look it up on Google Maps or something like that. But the point from the front manager was, I'm not even getting to have that conversation. I don't even get to talk to the customer. They're just saying, nope. Don't do that. It's basically, it's similar to an issue of where an executive is essentially extorted, right? As a fraud manager, you need to appeal to the executive with data and common sense. Like your instincts and your intuition aren't going to count because they might have that gut feeling, wow, this is bad too. But the alternative to them is, for example, with this one, I suggested to the fraud manager that they pull the percentage of approval rates across the country. So the percentage of orders that are approved after the bank has provided their decision, so post-op. And actually, I just had a merchant, uh, I got to share a little bit of the results of the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey today for at the MRC in a private lunch sponsored by the sponsor of the survey, which is Forder. And one really great merchant came up afterwards and asked me a good question about approval rate that I just hadn't thought of breaking down before in detail. But they asked me if most merchants calculate approval rate based on the percentage of orders that their automated transaction monitoring system approves or if they're basing it on manual review rate. So of all the orders that go to manual review, what percentage of orders are approved to be shipped? 
And I said, it's especially if you have both and not every company has manual review, not every company is going to have a transaction. It, there's so many different nuances, but about 65% of companies are doing, I think it's good to have both numbers because then even if you're looking at it, you're saying, huh, okay, our provider is recommending that, or our provider is automatically declining a high percentage of orders, then you can contact your provider or contact their customer support or your account exec and say, hey, why is it so low? Why is it going down from where it was last month or something like that? Or the reverse can happen. You could say, ah, you're approving a lot. Now we're charged for rates way up. You should always kind of use those two, those percentages to be your guidepost. So your risk appetite is where, as well as how many top line sales are bringing in. So in that case, it's, but you should be doing both, right? So you should be doing percentage of orders declined and percentage of orders approved, player transaction monitoring system, and then percentage of orders approved and Besides divorce, decline, men or separately and together. I, I just hadn't thought of that before of actually explaining it. So I thought, huh, that's a good question. And I always know that if Wanderers knows the question, so like other people have the question. So I thought I'd share that. But anyway, on this example, where the executive is basically being extorted with the prayer of social media, but we beat in on fence within three eyes. Oh, this is not true. So if you pull your holistic percentage of the orders approved across the entire country, in this case, it was the U.S. Mm. And say that your combined approval rate is, I hope it's in the lead to high 90. You are. To the head of merchant, the old marketplace that you are. And then you compare it to the approval rate, like the combined approval rate of that particular zip code and postal code, because that's what definitely, because I live in a predominantly, a neighborhood that is predominantly lived in by people of color or it's seen, or it's seen as a risky zip code, which some shipping carriers do have place of risky zip codes, and I you can use that as a data point. They certainly don't, but he's using it as the data point for this reason, but also because it really varies, right? And there might be a zip code that's very risky for one item, but not, and also it's subjective the way that they figure that out. But you're getting a little bit off track here. If the approval rates are similar, right, of the whole country versus this one zip code that you're being accused of, racially profiling and not shipping to, you can look at it and if it's vastly different or if, you know, there's balance, like if it's vastly different or if you're like, huh, do Drew's a little bit lost to order in the zip code, but let me see the chargeback rate. It was a big high chargeback some zip code. We might just have a flood ring that keeps trying to ship to that zip code. It could be justified, right? Really, you want to be able to demonstrate that you took the feedback from the customer seriously and you went to the data. I bet the, thing, the data will probably show similar approval or defines. And if it doesn't, the chargeback will target rate or loss is a little higher. So use that to provide the executive's confidence in your team and its decision. Not just about this one thing, about all of it. There's also, I think it's also a good opportunity if you're able to demonstrate what the data shows and that it backs it up. You can run through, you run the transaction through the system with new payment information for a second review, and you can provide a good customer service to them. So just to get an opportunity to provide a policy of, hey, you know what? We really would like to review this again. And now that the executives have complimented your decision, so it's okay. So that you're doing you're doing a good job. You can say, hey, what was the approval from the bank? Or what was this or what was that? Or you can review it again and see if they give you another payment method with the same information and different information. So there's different ways that you can do that in a way, but you, I guess my point is, if the executive is coming to you and saying, oh my gosh, just screenshot them, you're not going to be able to the customer or the customer of Asian Arts right away. You're going to have to the executive that person they want. There are no doubt more examples of social engineering 
motivations and tactics that are targeting online companies for their own personal gain and to exploit your organization like either it's in a short amount of time or in the long run but i just wanted to provide that one because i thought it was absolutely insane however they are and how they're taking advantage of situations in our society right now and sensitivities in our society right now for personal gain to be able to gain thousands of dollars of items honestly without even trying to make the order look legitimate we could at least tip our hat to them, but then we can say, and now we're going to try to make sure that doesn't ever happen again. Especially if you're a retailer or another company and you're seeing something specific, I want you to note that problem social engineering. But I think that all of these things can be applied to something. And that's also something that I found really interesting in talking with people who listen to this podcast and I just, and I really appreciate that it's not. It's something I hear over and over again is, even if that topic doesn't, I can almost always take the thing out of it. So I really appreciate that. I generally like them based on what people are talking about, what people are asking me about. And like I said, social engineering, specialist tweaks, there's just been some crazy ones. That was by far the craziest. And that's also another example of if you just train your team on the exact motivations and specific methodologies, you might have missed that one. There's CEO scams. There's so many things. The CEO scams aren't skipping the CEO. They're targeting a lower paid employee, but still. I just, I'm such a proponent of education and I think, especially on this topic, fun and educational, the fun part, right? And the memorable. If it's fun and memorable, then people will remember it and they'll actually apply it. And so there are, there are other people that change on social things as well, but I just thought Robert's story was so fascinating. And I can see a lot of people who aren't interested in fraud or don't know anything about social engineering really enjoying it. And then next time they get an email, or a phone call that's begging for their attention and that they do something right this second, it might go, oh yeah, this could be a corporate spy. They could be trying to get a piece of this information to then get more information from someone else to sell to our competitors. I probably shouldn't do that. Or this could be they're wanting to commit cybersecurity or whatever it is. So I really hope you enjoyed it. I also want to hear from you because I'd like to be able to start bringing in more authors and people outside from the industry if that's something you guys like and enjoy so i love your feedback i love for this to be a two-way conversation it's weeks like this even though i'm exhausted and everything else i wish sometimes that we could stretch it out longer because inevitable you're not able to see or talk to ever please i'm so grateful that i have this opportunity so i really love to hear what no what you like wait all those things so please keep telling me that and i just appreciate you guys so much and i look forward to speaking with you more next week Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.